Hello everyone and welcome to the podcast An Astrophysicist in a Car Getting Coffee. Your host, Marcio Melendez. I am an astrophysicist in my car on my daily commute to Baltimore. And I may or may not be having coffee, but today I'm drinking a cup of coffee just to sustain this beautiful Maryland weather as it's raining a lot well not a lot but it's been raining for the last couple of days and while you're driving and it's amazing how people still fail to master the concept of friction and water so as long as you go slow things should be fine but in any case, welcome to this podcast. Last time, my last podcast was on December and I got sucked into all this holiday break and a lot of things at work. And one of these episodes, I'll talk to you specifically about my work. I work at the Space Telescope Science Institute in the Wavefront Sensing and Control Group. This is the group that is responsible to align the optical elements of the James Webb Telescope that is the next generation of space telescope that will be placed, that will be launched to space uh, next year uh, roughly in one year from now and, and it's very exciting and perhaps that can help set the mood for today's podcast which is how we can push the boundaries of scientific discoveries through technology, right? So let's say, for example, the James Webb Telescope need to have a precision on the way it measures the light from the telescope, a precision of tens of nanometers. So one nanometer is 10 to the minus nine meter. So imagine that level of precision that you need to have for you to measure the expansion of the universe, right? And it may not sound, of course, when you consider what type of question you're trying to answer, right? With the James Webb, we're trying to answer the first light that came from this early universe when the universe was only about 100 million years old or so. So imagine the level of sensitivity that you need to have to look back in time to the first galaxies that form in the universe, right? I mean, is that sensitive that you could detect the heat signature of a bumblebee if you place that bumblebee at a distance from the moon to the earth? So that level of sensitivity is the one that you need to have for the James Webb telescope, which is not completely on her in terms of the level of sensitivity and precision that you need to have for some of these instruments. Like the Kepler mission, that um, it was a planet hunter mission from NASA uh, that is no longer functional. We have the TESS, which is an improve on Kepler. But Kepler could have detected a change on the brightness of a flea crawling across a headline of a car that is placed 100 miles from you. 
So imagine what level of sensitivity you need to have on your instruments for you to detect a change of brightness because a flea is crawling across a headline of a car that is 100 miles away from you. Or the whole space telescope, it needs to be as stable that it cannot move more than one thousandth of a hair width. The width of a hair divided by a thousand if you place that one mile away from you. Now, the questions that we're trying to answer are questions that are very complicated, right? How old is the universe? Is the universe expanding? Where we come from, right? One of the questions that the James Webb will try to answer is about exoplanets. It's about life in the universe itself. We're going to use the James Webb telescope to study the atmospheres of exoplanets, of planets that are outside our own solar system. So imagine what type of machine you need to build to answer that question, right? To look at the atmosphere of a planet that is outside the solar system. And from that image, you decompose the light and you study the molecules and the different compounds that are inside that atmosphere, right? Whether or not we can travel to that planet is a different question, right? But imagine the level of technology that we need to have for that. And I think all that goes back to our friends, the Greeks, 10,000 years, uh, 10,000 years, no, 2,000 years ago. We have this notion, which is a very reasonable one, 2,000 years ago, that the Earth was the center of the universe, or at least to our universe, right? We know the Earth is not even the center of our solar system. Right? <laughs> well, not even the Sun is the center of our solar system. And we'll go into more detail about that. I mean, technically, right? Uh, we know the solar system is just one of many of solar systems or stellar systems in the Milky Way, and we all orbit around the Milky Way supermassive black hole, Sagittarius B, that is at its center. And the Milky Way itself moves, right? So that is not really a center of the universe. Well, let's say, going back to the Greece 2,000 years ago, it wasn't that unreasonable to think that we were the center of our universe because you see everything move around. You see the sky, you see the sun going from one direction to the other one, you see the stars, and you see a repeated pattern. So that repetition, that consistency on the patterns make you believe that perhaps we were the center of the universe. And it was, go, it was with that idea that um, overall humans, we are pretty awesome. We're going to talk about that in a second, but um, we can develop these theories, we can think about it, we can identify patterns, right? That's very unique about human nature. We can identify patterns, we can identify these constellations, these patterns of stars in the sky, and from that we can find periodicity, we can find these common elements that repeat over and over, over years. And, and we're pretty good at that. So it wasn't unreasonable to think that. But now, it comes the first genius, right? Aristarchus, a Greek scientist, a, an astronomer. He's the best we can know, we can tell. The first astronomer to 
postulate that the Earth was not the center of the universe, but that it was the Sun at the center of it, right? at the center of the solar system. So we go from a heliocentric view of the solar system or the universe, heo meaning Earth, right? So the Earth is at the center of the universe to a heliocentric view of the universe where helio, the sun, is at the center of it. So this is important for a couple of reasons. Right. And the first thing that we need to understand is that you cannot only postulate a scientific theory without anything to back it up, right? And it's not like you can postulate the wildest thing that you can imagine, and then somehow, if you get it right, then you can say, you know, oh, I knew it from the beginning, right? No, a scientific theory needs to have something to back it up. And this was the case for Aristarchus. It's not that he proposed that the sun was at the center of the universe, or in this case, of the center of their universe, right? Which was composed only about a few planets, right? You have Jupiter, Saturn, up to Jupiter, Saturn these planets, these wandering stars, right? These things move faster than stars, and a few constellations. So it's not, only, it's not only that he postulated a theory, but he did some calculations to prove that his theory was correct, right? So we go from postulating something to actually backing up that with some numbers and some theory to something that you can test, you can prove. And we're going to see that's a fundamental difference of just someone just randomly postulating a theory, right? So for a scientific theory, you need to postulate, you need to have something that can back up, that can give some consistency to your theory. And this was Aristarchus. So he noticed uh, that when you have sort of like half moon, there have to be, if it's true that the sun is at the center of the universe, there are a few configurations that you can identify that allows you to apply some geometry into it, right? If you look that the moon is forming, the shade of the moon is forming like a half, a half moon, that means that within that configuration, you are just creating a, a rectangle angle a rectangle triangle, right? So a triangle that have one of the angles is 90 degrees. So he was clever enough to identify a few configurations, right? And also, if it was true, if you wait six months, if you make measurements with a six month gap, that means you are in different size of the same orbital path. So you can create another rectangle or straight air triangle. Again, a triangle that have one of the angles is 90 degrees. So he identified some of these configurations that make his life easier, but he could create with these some very basic triangles. And from those, he was able to derive relative sizes and relative distance between the Earth and the Sun and the Earth and the Moon and also sizes, the size. So he identified that the sun must have been 20 times farther from the Earth than 
what the moon is from the Earth, basically. So the sun is 20, far, 20 times farther from the Earth than the moon is from the Earth. Of course, we know now that the sun is 400 times farther, roughly 400 times farther from the Earth than what the moon is from the Earth, right? But this is the tricky part. His calculations were correct. He used algebra and geometry to calculate his measurements, to prove his theory. And his measurements and his theory was correct, but the angle that he measured was incorrect by a very small amount. And the reason was he didn't have the technology to measure this angle so precisely. So there was a difference of like, I think the angle was like 89 degrees. Remember the sun is, is very far away, so some of these angles are really small. And the moon is also far away, so some of these angles are really small. So the angle he should have measured was 89 degrees to build this triangle, but he measured 87. So that difference of two degrees on his measurement is the difference between having a sun 20 times farther than the moon than having a sun that is 400 times farther than the moon. But his reasoning was correct, his algebra was correct, his triangles were correct. It's just the technology that he had was limiting him to obtain the correct angle. But it's the first time that someone used a geometry and algebra to prove, to back up a theory, and at least an astronomical theory. So this was very, very interesting. Uh, now, of course, people, they didn't want to believe that we, that we humans were not the center of the universe. So he got a lot of pushback from his theory. And, and of course, people were saying like, well, if the sun is at the center of the universe, that means that the Earth needs to be rotating around the sun. And if the Earth is rotating, why we don't feel the air drag or the air, the air moving as we move around the sun, right? And we know that we have an atmosphere and we are a local system, right? And that's the same reason that if you jump on top of the Earth, the Earth is not moving underneath your feet, right? The same way that if you are jumping inside an airplane, the airplane doesn't move below your feet. Or if you throw a ball inside a car, the ball, the car doesn't follow its paths, uh, independent of you, right? So we know that. Um, but you can see that it was not reasonable for Briggs to think that, well, if we are moving around the sun, right? And if you need to move 360 degrees in one year, you must be going really fast, right? So why we don't see that air, that air drag as we move, as we orbit around the sun? But also there was another question that it would have been harder to solve, which is if we make measurements every six months, why the really far away stars, they don't move? If the Earth is moving around the Sun, every six months we should see a greater change on the foreground stars or the background stars, the stars that are so far that they are almost fixed in the sky, right? And I'm not talking about constellations. I'm talking about really far 
uh, stars that are really far away that they seem almost fixed to the sky and that was also very hard for Aristarchus to prove now the reality is that they do move every six months which is the lighter uh, the the largest distance that you can have in this orbital path of the earth around the sun right half a year we do see this movement of a star but it was only thanks to the space telescope Hubble and now all the new generation of space telescope that we have been able to precisely identify that change on these really far away stars because they are so far away that that angle that angle in which they change is so small that you need to have a really high degree of precision of your instruments right so that's the first thing that limited Aristarchus he could have argued against the air drag perhaps he would have been able to convince people about their air drag on the earth but that change of the really far away stars in six months he would not have been able to convince people otherwise because he wouldn't he wouldn't be able to measure that change of position because he didn't have the technology so uh, and those were the only things we're going to see later with Galileo and with Kepler and with Copernico right we're going to see Copernico Kepler Galileo and then Newton that this change on the star they didn't also they didn't have quite the technology to measure some of these difference in angle but there were many other things that were going to help disprove this heliocentric view of the universe right but at that time it was very difficult for Aristarchus to do that so that whole model uh, remained for for a long time and then people like Ptolemy built in that model, right? Built on this heliocentric view of the universe. But Ptolemy was a little bit smarter and he used a, a few tricks to put on this heliocentric view in the, on the universe because he wanted to explain retrograde motions, right? And a retrograde motions, at least retrograde motions, are these uh, projection effects that we get when you are looking at a planet and suddenly that planet is moving in one direction and suddenly goes backward in the sky and then again forward on the sky. So the retrograde means that it goes backwards on its normal orbital path. And this is not a true movement, it's not that the planet is going backward on its orbit, but it's the apparent motion of the planet with respect to the Earth. And that has to do with the fact that planets orbit at different speeds. So the planets that are closer to the star orbit faster, and the planets that are farther from the star orbit slower. And that difference on velocity on rotational velocity of translation velocity of angular velocity of the planets <coughs> around the orbiting star is what caused this apparent motion uh, as we see in that projected in the sky because at some point the planet that is closer is going to take over in the orbital path so at some point it's getting closer to the planet the outer planet or the planet that is farther from the star is getting closer, it's closer, then it passes, and then is at some point it's gonna have 
more or less is going to align on the same path and then it's going to pass it. So that movement, when it's catching up on the spits, is what caused this apparent motion of the sky, right? So Ptolemy uses epicycles, which are like small circular orbits that the planets have, and is still in this uh, heliocentric view of the cosmos with using these epicycles, he was able to explain and predict some of the patterns that people were able to recognize on the sky. Like he was able to predict uh, eclipse, solar and lunar eclipse. He was able to predict the movement, these retrograde motions of the planets and what we see on the constellations and the patterns of the sky, of the, the patterns of the stars in the sky. Now, and this is the second part that is important to remember. Well, not the second, but also something important to remember is that uh, sometimes, and this is the case of Ptolemy, you can have a theory that is incorrect, an overall theory that is incorrect, but that is giving you correct predic predictions. And this was the case of Ptolemy. A heliocentric view of the universe, it is incorrect, right? That view in which the center, the Earth is at the center of the universe is incorrect. But the predictions of his models were correct. So they were correctly predicting what people were observing in the sky. Meaning, it was correctly predicting retrograde motions, and the timing of the planets orbiting, and the positions of the constellations. So for the people that needed these predictions for their, uh, for navigation purposes, for commerce, for other activities, right? It was good enough. So it was the case of a theory that was incorrect, but it was correctly making predictions. Uh, so that's very important to remember that you can have a theory that is incorrect but that is making predictions correctly or correctly to the degree that you need it right because it was not truly correct in the sense that when you go with a great degree of precision it was not good enough but it was good enough for the things that people needed to be now, the first genius that come, and in a way may have built in this previous knowledge of Aristarchus, is Copernicus, right? So Copernicus realized that this Ptolemy model that, so Copernicus is in the Renaissance, right? We are talking about 1500. Ptolemy was like middle age, like uh, 500 years before Copernicus, so. And, and then Copernicus realized that this Ptolemy model has become very complicated because Ptolemy uses his model as a roughly sort of like a like an old car. You know, an old car, you're trying to fix it, perhaps you don't have the parts anymore, and you just go on eBay and trying to get the parts that you need, and at the end of the day, after years, you have this sort of like monstrosity of car that is built with different different parts. It works but it's not the optimal car that you would like to have, right? And that was the case for the Ptolemy model of the universe. 
it worked, it predicted things, but it has become so complicated but because every time you have better technology, then you have more measurements, and then you needed to explain those new measurements, those new observations, and then he added another epicycle, or he added something different, right? And then Copernicus noticed that this was a model that was just too hard to maintain. So he went back to this heliocentric view of the universe. He put back the sun at the center of the universe, as Aristarchus did 2,000 years before him, 1,500 years before him. And then he was able to knock down a notch the complexity of the Ptolemy model. So he made his model, the Copernicus model, was simpler than the Ptolemy model. Now, it still retained some of the epicycles, so it was not a complete and bulletproof model, but because he adopted a few things from the Ptolemy model, but uh, he placed the sun correctly at the center of the solar system or at the center of the universe, and he shifted a little bit the position so uh, these were not perfect orbital uh, path, but if the position, the center of the sun was slightly off, um, still orbital path, but it was slightly off, so it can match some of the things that people were observing in the sky. But it was certainly a huge improvement, right? Now we go back again to this notion that the Earth orbit around the sun, which is important, right? Because that notion of something moving around something else will introduce us naturally to the notion of force. And that's what Newton saw later, right? That, that notion of force. If someone is moving in a circular path, that means that its path is changing constantly. So for something to change path, there has to be a force acting on that object. And that is the most important thing to remember when we talk about Newton. A force is a change on position, right? So if you have something that is moving in an orbital path, that means that it has to be a force that is making that object to change its path constantly. Otherwise, that object will try to go in a straight line, right? So that was important, and that's something that is going to happen in the next 100 years after Copernicus, right? 1500, 1600, when Newton that is going to realize that thanks to Kepler and thanks to Galileo. But in any case, Copernicus is sort of like the Chuck Norris of the Renaissance for the science. So he realized it, he pushed for his theory, and he created this new theory. He put back the sun at the center, and his predictions were much better. Now, even though his predictions were much better, that was not really the improvement of, of because still people could have lived with the predictions of the Ptolemy model. But Copernicus was easier to use. The Copernicus model was easier to, to use. It didn't have all these artifacts that the Ptolemy had to put on top of it to, for his model to work. So it was a cleaner, better, and more aesthetically pleasing scientific model. So it was easier to use and it looks much better than this most trusty that the Ptolemy model has been uh, transformed into it. 
Now, people didn't still quite believe that the sun was the center of the universe, but they accepted the Copernicus model because it was a good way and it was a much better way to predict the things that they needed to predict, right? So there was a great improvement. Now, it comes the next big step on technology, which is Tycho Brahe. So Tycho Brahe generated and created his own instruments to measure more precisely uh, angles at different stages in different places, in particular the angles of rotations of, of Mars. So he have all these huge sextants and all these instruments that have a great improvement on precisions, on measurements, right? And he was very organized on his measurement. He had this huge list of everything in years and years of measurements of stars, and in particular Mars and Venus and all the planets with a great level of precision. Still, his model was a mixture of a heliocentric and a geocentric model. So these are Tycho Brahe models. So he was not able to make that leap. Still, he wanted to have a mixture of it. Um, but he did a huge contribution in the sense that he had this new catalog of measured things, including Mars. Now, his student was Kepler, a mathematician, a very smart mathematician, uh, that has access to all this information. Now, this comes another point that is important. So Tycho Brahe has all this information, all these catalogs that he was using by himself, and he was not letting anyone have access to some of this information, right? So Kepler didn't have access to all this information, not after Tycho Brahe died. So after Tycho Brahe died, he, Kepler had access to all these vast amount of organized observations and measurements. Because of that, then Kepler, which is the next big genius, you know, Kepler realized that there is a geometrical form that planets can have as they orbit the sun that is better suited to explain what we see than just a pure and perfect circular motion. And that's an ellipse. And I think because he was a mathematician, he had all these concepts on his head, right? So an ellipse is a much better way for planets to move around the sun. So he replaces that circular motion which, with an elliptical motion, right? Now for planets, and, and really a circular motion is just a case of a, with a very particular eccentricity, it recovers a circular motion, right? So it's a more generic geometrical shape that in a very particular scenario goes back to a circular motion. So planets are not quite circular, they are elliptical, but they are very close to a circular path, but not close enough that you wouldn't notice that effect, right? So that was something important. So he proposed his three laws of motions or not laws of motion, those are uh, Newtons, but he proposes three laws. 
The first one is that the planets do not move in a circular orbit, but they move in ellipse. The second law is that in that ellipse, they cover the same area at the same in the same time. So meaning that for a particular area that you're swiping on that ellipse, you are covering that area at the same time. Though that means that practically means that a planet that is orbiting closer to its star, in this case to the sun, the planet that is closer to the sun needs to move faster than the planet that is orbiting far away from the sun. So they can match, they can cover the same areas at the same time. That difference, that put already a difference on planet velocity, meaning that the ones that were closer are moving faster than the ones that are farther away from the star. And that helps solve right away the problem with retrograde motions, right? Now we know that that difference on the planet's speed is due to gravity, but Kepler was a complete, he was a mathematician and he was looking this problem empirically, right? So he put a mathematical model on top of it, and then empirically he noticed that uh, there was this uh, uh, difference that because of his theory of his law of having the same speed for the same areas was making these planets go faster as they orbit closer to the sun and that was fitting empirically uh, the measurements that we have. And the third law is very interesting because the third law it was a completely empirical, empirical law as well. He took the measurements of how far the planets were and how long it takes for a planet to complete an orbit around the star and he found an empirical correlation between these two quantities and it was sort of like a straight line. So he found that if you measure how far these planets were and you knew you could tell how far these planets were because you have all this geometry and you can measure how far uh, how long it takes for these planets to go around the sun then you'll have a perfect correlation between these two quantities later we're going to find with newton that that correlation have units but for kepler it was a, a pure empirical correlation right and it's one of these correlations that you if earth was the only planet in our solar system he wouldn't be able to postulate his third law of, of uh, he wouldn't be able to postulate the third law because this third law is an empirical law based on measured quantities of a planet orbital period so that was very interesting and that was very useful uh, so he postulated three laws that was a huge advancement. Now, the second law, the, the, the equal areas in equal times is also an introduction to what we know now as the conservation of angular momentum, which is a law that also Galileo 
is gonna be looking at trying to understand the physics behind, right? Trying to understand the theory behind. And then of course, the ultimate genius of Newton will put equations and will put values and numbers into it. And we're gonna see that this empirical correlation that Kepler found, the third law of Kepler, uh, which is a relationship between the orbital period of an object and its distance, the orbital uh, radius of, of its path, and that correlation will come naturally when we look at Newton. But in any case, uh, today's episode, it was just to see how technology can push the boundaries and the importance of having this technology backing up uh, your scientific theories, right? Um, and trying to think outside the box in the sense that for thousands of years, people thought uh, had a strong belief about how the universe worked and some people, not only they proposed something different, but they were able to propose something different and create an experiment and, and come up with measurements to back up their claims. And I think that is the beauty of the scientific method, right? To not only uh, propose a theory, but to come out with a way of explaining the theory via measurements that people can reproduce, anyone can reproduce and corroborate uh, your predictions. So I think that was very important uh, to understand. But in any case, uh, I, I just got to work. So this is it. I made a record a second part of this episode on my way back home on my evening commute. Um, so I hope you enjoyed this and please let me know if you want me to talk. I'm thinking that at some point I'm going to start talking about astronomy news better and keep it short, less than half an hour, and we can talk about astronomy news and the latest in astronomy news uh, on my commute. But if there is something that you want to learn a little bit more, just let me know. Thanks for listening and I'll see you later.